0: If you have a copy of God's word with you, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. <clears throat> Over the past few weeks, we have been looking at John's gospel to think about some of the key statements that Jesus makes about himself in that gospel, things that he says that that really aren't found in any of the other gospels. Specifically, these are the I am statements where Jesus declares himself to be uh, exactly what his people need. We began by seeing him claim to be nothing less than full, uh, fully divine, even in his full humanity, claiming to be one and to be the very essence of the great God of the Hebrews, the I am himself. And from that foundation, then, he went on to say that he was the bread of life that gives us nourishment. He is the light of the world that brings salvation to his people. He is the door of the sheep, the very entrance by which God's people come to know him, and that he was the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This this morning, then, we come to a very powerful passage where Jesus reveals he is the resurrection and the life. We see this in John chapter 11, a chapter full of... Uh, frankly, unexpected words and actions by Jesus. Our text is a bit longer than usual so this morning, so we want to get right to it. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest instead. Then Jesus spoke plainly to them, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." This is the Word of God. This morning, as we seek to understand what it means that Jesus is, uh, the the resurrection and the life, we want to see four truths, four very powerful truths from this text, truths that, that lead us to be able to more strongly, more firmly, more securely bank our lives on Jesus Christ. This morning, the first truth that we see is this. It's a surprising truth. Jesus' love displays the grace of God's glory above all things. Jesus' love displays the grace of God's glory above all things. As we start with this story, we see something that, uh, if, if you're reading carefully, it's pretty shocking from Jesus. It's something that we might pass over if we're not careful, but it's crucial to the story. And more importantly, it's crucial to understanding who God is. Jesus begins simply enough telling us, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary, you remember, who anointed uh, the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Here's a family that Jesus knows well. He knows them and he loves them. They are part of his disciples, those that, that follow him and learn from him and, and, uh, and, and love him. And word comes to Jesus now that Lazarus is sick. They're asking Jesus to do something. They're saying, we, we've seen the miracles that you've done. We've seen the healings that you have done. Please now come. The one who loves you, the one that you love, he is sick. So come, come and do something. Heal him. And here's the surprising part. John writes, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. (laughs) You see, what? John, what are you saying here? Jesus loved this family very much, so, or therefore... Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer where he was because Jesus loved Lazarus and his family. He did not go to Bethany to heal Lazarus. John says that is evidence of Jesus' love. How do you explain that? I mean, from our perspective, we're seeing back actually saying, that doesn't seem very loving to me. If you really loved me, wouldn't you show up? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you heal my brother? But Jesus says no. We read the story. We know Lazarus does die, but he's only dead for four days before Jesus him back, raises him back to life again. But why let the family go through this? Why let the family watch their loved one perish, his life ebb away, to go through the funeral, go through all the preparations of burying him and having it sealed and the grief over the loss of this loved one? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus see this as a loving thing? The reason is this. Jesus knows that beholding the glory of God, seeing clearly, The glory of God is a far superior worth for our souls than being relieved of suffering or grief. Did you get that? If you you didn't get it, you need to. Beholding the glory of God is a far superior worth for our souls than being relieved of suffering or grief. Now, many of us might be here and say, you don't know the suffering that I've seen. You don't know the grief that I've seen. I would have preferred to not have experienced that. I would have preferred the healing. I would have preferred to not go through the pain. Frankly, that's who we are as a culture. We want the easy life. And we think it would have been a sign of God's love for him to give that to his friends, but Jesus says no. Jesus says, no, Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows that he is going to heal Lazarus, to heal him by raising him back to life from the dead. But he knows that his glory will be more supremely seen in raising him back from the dead than by simply going and healing him. And the greater the glimpse of God's glory, not just for that family, but for all those that were with them, the better they would come to treasure Jesus and more deeply trust in him ultimately Jesus says that treasuring Jesus trusting him believing him loving him by seeing his glory that is better than a pain free life that is better than not suffering and so later when it's been 2 days Jesus says I want to go down to Bethany now And he says, Lazarus has died. And he tells the disciples, for your sake, I was glad that I was not there so that you may believe. He's saying, it's not just love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's not just love for all these Jews that have come up from Jerusalem and their families around mourning and grieving with them. But now he also says to his disciples, this is also for your benefit too. I love you too. And I want you to believe. And if you see me do just one more healing, it may not happen. But if you see me raise Lazarus back from the dead, then I know you're going to believe. You will see my glory, glory as of the only Father, and you will believe. One of the things that we have to understand, though, because we may be thinking, "Well, why didn't he just wait till he died one day and go? Why, why did he wait till he died two days? He's been dead four days by the time he gets there. Why does he wait this long?" Well, frankly, it goes back to some, you know, what we would consider superstitious, some odd popular beliefs of the time. And, you know, sometimes it's easy for us to, to look back at a culture like that or look to another culture and say, boy, they have some weird ideas about things, don't they? But, you know, let, you know let's just pause and let's think just for a minute how some of the odd things we do when it comes to, to people dying. I mean, in this country, you're not allowed to be dead until a doctor says so. You know what I'm saying? I mean, someone could die in their house on, you know, on April the 2nd, but unless the doctor gets there, they're not dead. You know, uh, you know the, 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 legally, they're still alive. That's weird, okay? And it wasn't, not all, that wasn't always like that. Uh, that wasn't always the case. Uh, I was listening to, to one guy speak, and he was talking about uh, his grandfather who died in around 1921, died in the house. Uh, you know, died right in the house, and the family literally made the coffin out of some old wood and buried him in the backyard, and that was it. They had the service, and they were done. And of course, today, all no, no, you've got to have the coroner, and you've got to, you know, think about what we do, too. We, we, most of the time, we still embalm somebody. Why, why do we do that? Well, we keep them from decaying. Why do we want to keep them from decaying? Because we want to put them in this really fancy box, dress them up in a suit that they've hardly ever worn, and put them out so everybody can come and see them. And we, and, we, and we say, because we think it helps people in the grieving process, say, Doesn't they look, don't they look so good? When we're lying, they don't look good. They look dead. They've got makeup crusted all over their face. But we think somehow this is going to, maybe, we don't, we don't know what else to say. That's, you know, someone who's gone to funerals, someone who's participated, that's weird to me, okay? But here's something else that's weird. In this culture, there was a superstition. That, that for, for three days after you died, your spirit hovered. It, it kind of floated around. And then once you passed that three-day mark, it was four days. And, and because of the heat and the atmosphere and the, the climate, it was obvious that you're, you were deteriorating. Your skin was already decaying. You didn't look like yourself anymore. Then the spirit, without wanting to enter back on the body, saw, oh, that's not me anymore. And boom, then they took off. Okay? Now, why would they have this superstition? Okay. Well, you can think about it in some modern times, can't you? You have stories of people that are declared dead on the scene of an accident. They're zipped up in the body bag, and they're taking them back to the morgue, and the bag starts moving. But they weren't really dead! Their vital signs were so low, you're doing this number and you're in the the trauma in the field. You say, I I got nothing. They're already dead. So you put the black tag on them and you go on to somebody else, but they weren't really dead. Now you think about the the much less advanced medical uh, technology and knowledge back then. You have people that might slip into a temporary coma because of an injury. You could have people that would just be unconscious for an extended period of time. They would look, give all the appearance of dead. We have historical records of, of people being dead and the next day they're going to take the body down to, uh, down to the grave and, and, and as, they're, as they've just sealed the tomb, on the, from the other side they hear, so, so how do they explain this? It must be the case that the spirit doesn't quite leave yet. It must hang around. Now don't think for a minute Jesus believes this. Because he is the author of this word and he says through the Apostle Paul that he asks it from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you die, you're either in the presence of God or you're out of his presence in hell and that's the reality. You don't hang around, you don't float, there are not disembodied spirits called ghosts floating around in houses in Bay City. No, no, just, that's, not, that's not true. Nevertheless, the people back then did believe this. And you can imagine what would have happened. Jesus shows up within that three-day time period. And they say, well, that's, you know, that's pretty cool, but it's three days. you know, you, you got to expect that happens sometimes. Spirit's still hovering around. Jesus is helping to get back in the body. So what does Jesus say? He says, let's wait. Let's wait. Let's wait to show beyond a shadow of a doubt his spirit is gone. He is dead And then you will know that I am the one who brought him back. Superstition will not get the glory for Lazarus coming back to life. God, through me, will get the glory. Now friends, as we think about this, as we ourselves have experienced pain and suffering in life, how many times have we called out to Jesus to come and to heal us or to heal our loved ones and he has not answered? How many of us can identify with Mary and Martha where we have been begging, Jesus, come, this person is sick. Come, we know you can heal them. And he doesn't come. He doesn't give healing and the person dies. There have been people that have been praying for years for Tom Martin. Jesus, come and heal your servant. And Jesus has decided not to come. You've got two options there. You can say, Jesus must not love me. Or you can say, Jesus knows in the midst of this pain and this suffering and this grief, he is going to be glorified. He is going to be revealed to be the mighty God that I can go to, the rock upon which I build my life, the very fountain of my faith. And so that's going to be better for me. And it's going to be better for those watching around me. Friends, when Jesus does not show up, do not think it's not because he loves you. In fact, it's because he loves you more if God gave us everything we wanted, if we lived a pain-free life, then we would not thank Him. We would not love Him. We would not care about Him. He would become the genie in the lamp that we would pull out when we needed something and put back away at the end of the day. But He wants, by revealing His glory to us, even in pain and suffering, He wants to show Himself to be the God who He is so that we will come to love and treasure Him and see Him as worth more than anything else in this life. Secondly, secondly, as Jesus... As Jesus demonstrates his love by, by, with, by withholding himself now. Now we see Jesus and his authority. Jesus coming and consoling his loved ones. The second thing we see is Jesus' authority consoles humanity's grief and death. Jesus' authority consoles humanity's grief and death. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, "'Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died.'" Now, I don't think Martha's comment is meant to be taken nasty. I don't think Martha's saying, "'Lord, if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. Why didn't you come?' I don't don't think that's what she's saying. I think she's just, she knows who Jesus is. And she's affirming his authority over life and death. And she says, you know, if if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And I almost think she feels bad about it. Because almost immediately she comes back and says, "But, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She doesn't want Jesus to be offended. But you can imagine, because we do this. When something bad happens, don't we sit around and play the what if game? What if they just got to the doctor earlier? What if I had just left a few minutes earlier and not been fumbling to find my keys? Maybe I wouldn't have gotten in that car accident. What if, what if, what if, what if? And you can imagine Mary and Martha have been saying the same thing and they've been saying to themselves, if only Jesus had been here. If only Jesus had been here. And yet Jesus now comes and he's there and she still has confidence in him. Now understand she's not thinking about Lazarus coming back to life at this point. You see, how do you know that? Well, because just a few minutes later, we're going to see she doesn't want the tomb back opened. And if he's coming back to life, surely he's got to come out of the tomb. So she's still not thinking about resurrection yet. Instead, she's just got this big picture. She loves Jesus. She knows he has authority. He is the Messiah, she will confess. And she's glad that he's here. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Oh, isn't that so, like Jesus, ambiguous in this instance to draw out her faith. He knows. Yeah, she, he's going to rise in just a few minutes. But she agrees, pointing to her orthodox belief. She says, oh yeah, I know. I know in the future resurrection, he, he, he's going to be alive. She was a good Jew. She believed in the future resurrection of God's people. But Jesus then presses in further. He takes up and he says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's actually saying two things. It's not resurrection and life as if one thing. No, Jesus is making the claim of two things here. First, he's saying, well, he's saying he's both the resurrection and the life. First, he's the resurrection. That is, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in Jesus, though physically dies, body falls to the ground, is put away. Perhaps from hundreds of years past, back when this is happening, body is gone now. Jesus says, you will have life again one day you will experience resurrection from the dead. But then secondly, he says he is the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What he's saying is this, anyone who believes in Jesus, though physically may die, he's not really dead. Because when you believe in Jesus, he imparts spiritual life, eternal life. And once you have that, you will never die. Your body goes in the ground and your spirit goes to the Lord, waiting for Jesus to, to reveal himself to be the resurrection not just the life. So it's great Martha believed in the resurrection, but now he's claiming something more. Jesus says, I am the one who brings resurrection and life. I am the one who makes it possible. If you have any conception of resurrection and life, then you need to think of me. I am the one who brings it. Jesus presses her even further and he says, do you believe this? Jesus wants to know if she can trust him to be the one who gives resurrection and life. And she says, yes. In fact, she makes this amazing declaration, this amazing confession of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. I've read that in years past, the Church of England was known as the fellowship of those who knew how to die well. They knew how to handle death because they have that same confession that Martha did. But today, at least in our culture, that's not true of the church. We cannot say we are the fellowship of people who die well. In fact, death is even a taboo subject. Some of you were listening and it was no problem. But when I talked about our funeral practices, I guarantee you some of you it was like fingernails on a chalkboard. You thought, why is he talking about this? Why is he bringing this up? I don't want to talk about this. I want to think about this. Death is just a taboo subject that we don't bring up in polite conversation. Even as Christians, visiting other Christians in the hospital, we go to see them. We pat them on the hand and say, well, you're going to get better. It'll all be better. It's okay. You'll be out of here soon. And the doctor said they've got weeks to live. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to think about it. We want to put it as far away from our minds as possible. And we think it's in poor taste when somebody else talks about it. There was uh, a woman who had gone through breast cancer twice. She was the wife of a seminary professor and he was talking about this very thing and he said there was another man in the church who had developed cancer and um, it was not going well for him. And so um, it looked like the end was getting very close and so they had a a large prayer service at their church just outside Chicago for this man. And this woman who had struggled through breast cancer uh, twice Came to, came to the service. She was a member of the church and so she was going to pray and, and he was relating from her that the prayer service began with people uh, pleading with God to heal this man of cancer, heal this great servant who had done so much good in the church and was a witness in the community and to heal him, to heal him. And then she's, it got so far towards the end that people began to say, uh, we're, we're so confident that you're going to heal this man. We thank you even now that you're going to do it. And when it was her turn, this wife who herself had struggled with cancer, said, God, we know that we would love this man, this brother, to be healed. We would love to see you restore life to his body so that he could continue to be an encouragement to this church and a witness for you. But Father, that's not your will. If it's your will for him to die, then let him die well, fully faithful as a believer in your Son, Jesus Christ. And she said, when she prayed that, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Later, people were mad at her for praying that. What a defeatist attitude, they said. Well, here's the reality. Here's the reality. In this life, we're not promised a life free from pain. We are certainly not promised a life free from death. But when we do talk about death, we shouldn't be afraid of it. Because the reality is... Everything involving life and death is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. We can face death with hope, with victory, with triumph, because we know what's coming on the other side. Death is, in that sense, nothing to be feared. And Jesus is now telling, he's now telling Martha. He knows what he doesn't tell her. You notice what he doesn't tell her? He doesn't say, I'm sure that the local synagogue, they're going to provide you some meals for the coming days. And I'm sure that you'll still have fond memories of Lazarus. All the things that we do, and maybe not bad things. I'm not saying they're bad. But we have all these different things to to try and get someone to comfort them to lost their loved one. And what we need to say is, remember who Jesus is. He is the resurrection and the life. Your loved one died in fullness of faith in him, and so one day he will live again. Not only now that he lives in God's presence, but one day this physical body that just just gave up life. will One day have new life, resurrected life, glory of God-filled life that will never again perish for all of eternity. That's what we need to talk about when we talk about death. The Lord of life and death, Jesus Christ, because he is at the very center of all these issues. So Jesus doesn't come and point to all these different things to comfort those that he loves. He points to his authority as the resurrection and the life. Friends, this morning, do you want to know God? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want spiritual life that will be made full on the last day when God resurrects his people? Then you have to turn to Jesus and you must trust in him. The third thing that we see is that Jesus' passion reveals the devastation of sin and his sovereignty over death. Jesus' passion reveals the devastation of sin and his sovereignty over death. In verse 28, we read, when she had said this, that is Martha, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. What's going on? Why is he going to the village? The disciples were afraid to go down. Is he afraid? No, 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 no. Again, culture, culture. Have you ever been to a funeral, even here in the States, but of a different ethnic group? Uh, Sometimes a lot different than ours. Uh, One guy was talking about having been at several, and he said, you know, in Britain, uh, you know, particularly in years past, it was the stiff upper lip. You know, so, so if my wife died... You know, the most socially I would be allowed was maybe a single or, or two tears that, that dropped down. And people would ask otherwise, you know, uh, how did he bear up in the service? You know, and he was, he was well sustained, they would say. You know, no, no emotion. You know, whereas uh, this same guy said, if you ever go to a Greek funeral, he said, it's like big fat Greek wedding just at a funeral. He says, people are loud and wailing and, and, and lots of noise and commotion. And the more you love the person, the louder you cry. And that's very much the culture of, of the day here. And so even the poorest of people, they were expected to hire two flute players and a professional wailer, professional mourner. So if in the context of, of those gathered around, if you, know, you just got tapped out emotionally and, and it got quiet and nobody was actively wailing and crying, then this person would start up bawling with all their might. And of course, you're already emotionally frazzled. And so you hear someone else bawling, you start bawling again too. Well, that was a poor family. Uh, Mary and Martha, they're wealthy. See, so how do you know that? Well, we know that for a couple of reasons. One, because in the next chapter, Mary break up, breaks open this alabaster jar. It's a small little jar of perfume, but that little jar costs a year's worth of wages. That's not something you just go pick up at the, at the thrift shop. More than that, people come all the way from Jerusalem out to the town of Bethany to be with them. These are someone, this is someone well known in the community. People from the city are going out to the burbs to be with these people who are grieving. And so it's very likely that there are tons of people gathered around this family as they mourn. Not just a couple flute players, but entire orchestral sections that are there playing these dirges. And you have all these people wailing and mourning around them. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be able to talk to Mary in the middle of that. I'm not going to talk to Martha in the middle of that. And so he hangs back, and they can come to him and they can, they can talk privately. Well, Mary comes and takes off. But the people think, the people think that she's going out to the tomb. So they say, we gotta go with her. They, they want to be good, loving friends and relatives. And of course, what happens then is all the crowd comes out with Mary to Jesus. And Mary comes and she says, much the same thing that Martha said to him as well. And John tells us, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, the ESV that I preach from hardly ever lets me down, but here it does. But we can't bang it too hard because every English translation I've read gets it wrong. We have deeply moved. And that sounds like he's saddened by grief, but that's not, that's not in the original. The original is much stronger. It means he got angry. He got flaming, mad, angry. He said, what is he angry about? Well, there's lots of all kinds of crazy ideas in the commentaries. Here's, here's, here's my best guess. I think Jesus saw in the face of his loved ones, Mary and Martha. I think he saw in the mourners that were there and the wailers and the great dirge. I think he saw the reality of life in this world marred by sin, death and suffering and grief. And he was not detached from the situation. Jesus did not stand far off as the one who made all things who did not make it like sin and is now seeing the, the very fruit of generation after generation after generation of sin and rebellion and corruption bore out in front of him in the life of people he loves. It consumes him as the Lord of glory. This is not the way it's supposed to be. There should not be sin in this world that I created perfect for my people. This is what sets his face determinately to go to the cross. I will put an end to this disgrace in my good creation. And even as soon as he's angry, outraged at the display of the fruit of sin in front of him, we read in John such sublime words, Jesus wept. Wept, cried profusely. He's not just angered by sin, he's saddened by the consequences that he sees of it in the lives of those that he loves. Like any good human being, Jesus can be both angry and sad at the same time. Here he has grieved over the effects of sin in this world. Friends, do not be misled by the world's wisdom here. Do not be misled by pastors who do not know their Bible and just latch on to the world's wisdom. We are told death is just a normal part of life. And we're told that as if it's supposed to help us grieve. But Jesus doesn't agree. Jesus says, no, death is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why Paul calls it the last enemy. Death is our enemy. It's a fruit of sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be in our life. We were not made to die. Sin brought death into the world. And so Jesus here sets the example and says, whether it's a child dying of malnutrition or thousands killed by terrorists flying planes in the buildings, we should both be Weeping and angry over the effects of sin in this world. It is the very passion, the very emotion, the rawness of our hearts in response to that. That's what Jesus shows here. But then he goes on. John goes on and tells us, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, By this time, there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Lazarus is dead. Today, you have, again, all kinds of medicine, and that word dead loses its weight. We will all the time say, oh, they died on the table, but then they got him back. What what do they mean? That means the heart stopped, the lungs stopped, uh, pumping oxygenated blood through the the body. And so we say, well, they died and they got him back. That's not death. That's, That's not death. Not even medically. That's just common parlance. This is death. Jesus doesn't just come and, and manually force some blood through his through his body and breathe some some air and, 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 and keep, keep the systems on standby until Lazarus' own body can get going again. No, this man is dead. The heart has not beat a lick for four days. Air has not passed the man's lungs for four days. The brain has not fired a single neuron for four days. His skin is breaking down and withering and falling apart. He is decaying. He has been dead so long, he stinks. Lazarus is dead. And that means nothing to Jesus because he is the resurrection and the life. He knows exactly what Lazarus looks like. He knows the smell that's going to roll out of that tomb. And he says, open the tomb. And Martha tries to discourage him. And he says, she says, Lord, I don't want to see him like that. He's been dead for so long. His body is falling apart. It's, it's stinking. And Jesus says, did I not tell you?" If you believed, you would see the glory of God. There's no words from Martha. We have no idea if she says anything here. I think she probably didn't. I think she was so overcome with grief, she's looking at the tomb and she knows she's going to see, but there she sees her Savior. She sees the one that Jesus confessed is the Messiah. And not knowing what is going to happen, consumed with grief, I think she just nodded and we're told they obeyed Jesus and they opened the tomb. And then Jesus offers this amazing prayer. In fact, it he says he's already prayed. And if I had to guess, he prayed all the way back when he first heard the news of Lazarus' sickness. He prayed and he asked God, allow me to raise Lazarus from the dead. And here he says, when he stands before this open tomb, as the smell is now wafting off and in everyone's nostrils, and they know this is the, this is the stench of death. He says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I have said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. He says, Lord, I'm praying that everyone here knows what's about to take place you have done through me. And with the same voice, the same power, the same authority that that spoke all of creation into existence, Jesus calls into the darkness of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out! And he does. John says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus here not only displays his sovereign authority over physical life and death, but he presents a picture of his sovereignty over spiritual life as well. For all of us are born like Lazarus. As Bob Dylan says, stone cold dead heads coming from the womb. We are spiritually dead, yet God in His grace and His love, He calls into the darkness of our hearts and He says, John Botkin, come alive! To the gospel proclamation. And my eyes wake up and suddenly the, the cold stone heart of rebellious sin falls away and a heart of flesh begins to beat and I see who Christ is in all of His glory and I embrace Him in faith and am saved. Give eternal life. When you see Lazarus come out of the grave, oh Christian, that is you coming out of your sin to experience eternal life. And every time we proclaim the gospel message and someone gets saved, that is exactly what is happening as well. Jesus is the one who has the authority to do this. He is the resurrection and the life. Why does he have the authority? Because he dies on the cross. This is the last thing that we'll see. Jesus' death provides life to those in need of salvation. Jesus' death provides life to those in need of salvation. Back up at the beginning of the chapter, we remember the disciples. They didn't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem. In verse 8, they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus' disciples aren't just being cautious. Go back a chapter. The danger is real. It was dangerous for Jesus because he had just said, the Father and I are one. He just said, I am equal with God Almighty. And to the Jews, that was blasphemy. And they tried to kill him. And John says the only reason why they didn't do it was because it wasn't his time yet. In fact, the disciples are right. This trip south to Dugia will be Jesus' last. It will not be long after he raises Lazarus that he will then be arrested, flogged, and crucified. In fact, in the end, it is precisely because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead that Jesus himself dies. Lazarus is raised up to die another day and the result is that Jesus goes on to his death so that God is glorified and Jesus is glorified in his death. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in the council and said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Jews have seen Jesus' ministry building over the last three years, how he has revealed his glory over and over again, but never like this before. He's raised people back to life, but it's always been within that three-day period. Now, all bets are off. He says there's no, we can't explain this away by superstitious belief as some spirit coming back to the body. And they are afraid that Jesus now, his popularity is going to so explode that so many people are going to flock to him as the Messiah that the Roman government is going to see this as an incipient uprising. This is a rebellion about to happen and they're not going to have any of that. So they're going to send the troops down and they're going to destroy the temple and even the entire nation. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all. You don't know anything about this. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. And then John has this great aside in verses 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but to all. But to gather into one children of God, all who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas is derogatory in his response. He says, you don't know anything. You guys are sitting around whining what's going to happen. And you don't have a clue what needs to be done. Jesus needs to be killed. Caiaphas, the high priest of God's people, Israel, supposedly a shepherd of God's sheep, says, we need to take this guy out. After all, isn't it better that one man die than the entire people of God perish? D.A. Carson explains that this is incredibly ironic on two levels. First, Caiaphas wants Jesus to die so that this movement will go away and the nation will be saved because the Romans won't come in. The irony is he gets what he wants, Jesus dies, but 40 years later, the Romans still come in destroy the temple, and scatter the Israelites across the world. But then secondly, again, it's John's comment in verses 51 through 52. Caiaphas was giving his sinful opinion, but God, unbeknownst to him, was using him to utter a prophetic word. Caiaphas was speaking better than he knew. It wasn't Jesus just dying and so going away and saving the people. No, Jesus was going to die, one man in place of the people, bearing God's wrath. In their place. Jesus did die on the cross, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. He died a substitutionary death, bearing God's wrath against the sins of his people. Jesus came. Jesus came in weakness like no other person ever come. And it was in that weakness, that weakness, that he won victory over sin and death. You know, when the Lord of the Rings books were made into movies, there was a lot of talk about the Christian themes that were in the books and in the movies. And I, I would hear things like, yeah, the, the elves are, are meant to be the angels and they're protecting the people and da-da-da-da-da. And I had a seminary professor, Dr. Mark Seifried, and he was a Lord of the Rings fan before it was cool to be a Lord of the Rings fan. Okay, uh, You know, years before this movie came out, I saw sitting on his shelf this massive one-volume hardback leather 15-bookmark Lord of the Rings complete edition. I'm thinking, whoa, you know, where do you get that thing at? It's all, yeah, I, I read that, you know, uh, 20 or 30 times now since I've got it. Oh, okay. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, Tolkien didn't write like that. He hated allegory. In fact, although C.S. Lewis was one of his best friends, he absolutely hated the Narnia books because it was Christian allegory. And Dr. Seifried said this. He said, the, the way in which Lord of the Rings points to Christianity is this. Victory was achieved in weakness. In Frodo the ring bearer, you have one who is the weakest in all of Middle Earth. He wasn't even human. He's a hobbit. He wasn't a fighter or a soldier. He wasn't particularly smart or cunning. Yet he was willing to bear the weight of ultimate evil to see it destroyed and to see Middle Earth set free. Likewise, Jesus came in the weakest way anyone could have imagined. Not with the glories of heaven or angelic forces. Instead, he took on flesh as an embryo a human egg supernaturally fertilized by the Spirit of God. He began as the very tiniest of babies and grew into adulthood, living for some 30 years in the muck and the mire of sinful humanity, not raising an army, but teaching a small group of fishermen on his way to death on a cross. And yet in his ultimate weakness, he was the mightiest of men. He destroyed the grave by being put in the grave. He destroyed sin or death by dying. He destroyed sin by being made sin for us. And all of it has seemed to be true by the glorious fact that Jesus Christ himself overcame death and was raised back to life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Father, we are thankful for the love that you displayed through your son to this family. Recorded down by John that we too might see your glory through Christ and believe. Father, we pray for your people that we would be strengthened and encouraged. Deepened in our faith because of this. And God, we pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you. Father, they would have seen your glory through Christ, that they would have heard the gospel of his death for sinners, and they would turn to him and trust him as their Savior and Lord. Father, in every way, may we leave this place strengthened in our faith and confidence in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In response to the message this morning...